You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I appreciate you being here. A little history to how this class came about. I'll be here for three Sundays. Gil and I were talking several months ago about doing something for Advent. And, you know, quite honestly, (laughs) most everything has been done about Advent in one way or another. And uh, I thought and thought, and he had some ideas and ideas, and so I, I came up with this. And that is, I wanted something to sort of um, prepare us for Christmas by developing not just our understanding, but hopefully our devotional approach to the coming of, of Christmas. And so what I want to do is to look at some what I'm calling here the great prayers and hymns of Christmas and do sort of a reflection upon them an appreciation for what they're talking about, and hopefully a little sort of theological analysis as well of some of these great prayers and hymns. Now, if I can stay on course long enough, I'm going to talk about two hymns today after I talk about three prayers from the Scriptures, and those are the two hymns are Hark the Herald Angels Sing, by a great hymn by Charles Wesley, and then O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now, if you have some hymn that you want to talk about for the next Sunday or the Sunday afterwards, if there's some hymn that you think would be edifying for the group, that you'd like to explore more, maybe even you know, tell me what you think about it, your kind of experiences with it, why don't you share that with me then after class, and I'll put that on the list for next Sunday and then the Sunday after that. All right. Also, uh, as I was in the 9 o'clock service, uh, an idea came to me uh, thinking about uh, this being you know, the beginning of the church calendar, and there's something very significant about that. Uh, you relive every year, you know, on January 1st, it's one, two, three, four. Okay, we relive these years, and our years add up like mine does, and some of yours has as well. But there's something significant, I think, about reliving uh, not just a number, one, two, three, but a holy event. Every Christmas, we relive, relive the holy event. Now, uh, you may think this is somewhat of a stretch of an analogy, but I think there's something very significant about constantly reliving these holy events throughout the year. Yesterday, I was making Moravian bread. You ever done that? Made Moravian bread? Uh, I like to bake some in my old age. I'm trying to to explore new horizons. Let's come in. Uh, And one thing I like to do is biscuits and, and bake bread and pastries and so on. But one of the uh, uh, those who have know that have done things like this to make bread, if you don't need bread, what happens to that bread? Sorry, it it won't stick. It just just sort of dissolves in your hand. You pick it up and it just flakes all over the place. But by kneading it, though, it gives it some substance, something hard. And the thing about Moravian bread that we were doing yesterday, we had to knead it for 15 minutes, which is a lot of work. You know. But it gives it literally a real substance to it. It's, it's, it's a fairly hard bread. And the same thing with biscuits. If you don't knead it properly, they get too flaky. If you knead it too much, it gets too hard. But what I liked about that idea is that you keep folding over and you get the right thickness of things. You keep bringing back into your life certain practices and it gives you substance. It gives you a depth of feelings and thoughts and, and memories. Well, that's what we do with the church calendar. We need the time. Uh, Time is not defining us. It's these holy moments now that define us. Every year we fold back over and go back over these great stories that we're going to talk about. 
and we fold them back in our lives and it gives us more substance, more memory, more reflection, more things to recollect and to define ourselves by. And so even though these things that we we do and, and read and talk about, you've done hundreds and hundreds of times, but that's good. Look at it like kneading that bread. It's giving you substance. It's giving your soul a depth by which you can even greater, I think, understand the holiness of God in this great event, this Advent season. This is year, and this is day one in the church calendar. All right, I have a little poem here by uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Anyone know him? Well, you should know him. He is a magnificent poet, tormented person, wrote some of the greatest poems, the fifth most quoted English poet, uh, of all time, though he only published 49 poems. The, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. You ever heard that poem? Oh, just brings you to tears. But, uh, uh, and actually I'm going to talk about one of his prayers later on. But this is sort of the theme that I'm going to give to our three sessions here. Uh, Make me pure, Lord, thou art holy. Make me meek, Lord, thou art lowly. Now beginning and always, now begin on Christmas Day. Let Christmas Day be that beginning in which, as I've said, all this needing, all this folding back into your life, all this reconsidering, this renewed study and contemplation, meditation, and praying and singing of all these things that we've, we've been nurtured for all these years, make that a new beginning for you again. I like this quote from Augustine, you know, 5th century great bishop of Hippo. When you pray to God in psalms and hymns, let the heart ponder what the mouth utters. You've read these things, you've heard these things, you've sung them. But let's let our heart ponder them. What do they mean? How do they shape us? How do they define what we are? All good theology, theology that is the study of God, which is different than biology, the study of life or whatever, or zoology, or philosophy, but the study of God actually begins with devotion. And devotion is, res, results from a divine encounter in some way or another. God approaches us. And those divine encounters, what I'm saying here, are acts of holiness. What I want to try to get across, and, and I don't think I'm going to need to persuade you all that much, but one thing you're here testifying somewhat that you are interested and have been moved by these great prayers and hymns, that when we sing these great hymns, uh, O come, O come, Emmanuel, there is an encounter of the holy there. Hark the herald angels sing. In a sense, we are hearing the angels sing to us in that great hymn. They've captured the church for centuries here as a way of communicating the presence of God, which develops our, our devotion from which our best thinking about God comes from. All right, I'm going to be sort of bouncing off two poles here as I go through these. That is, uh, these accounts require a twofold response, personal. We should examine ourselves. Who are we in light of what these great prayers say? How does this now shape the way I think and how I feel and my passions, my emotions, my orientations, my deepest sentiments and, and affections about things? How, how can I become like, well, wouldn't it be great you know, to be like Elizabeth when those angels came to her? Wouldn't it be great to be like Mary when those angels came to her? Or 
I get moved all the time. I want to think about them. We'll talk about him a little bit later. Simeon, who is at the temple eight days after Jesus is born, he's there waiting for the coming of the hope of Israel. And he sees Jesus. And he goes into this ecstatic prayer. Wouldn't you love to be Simeon? And have that kind of encounter. Well, that's part of what I want us to sort of do when we look at this. You know, who are we now in light of these great prayers and hymns? And then intellectual, that is, we need to think about this. What can we learn theologically? How should our doctrines be formulated by our devotion? Uh, there are three great prayers in Scripture associated with Christmas. And they're called the Lucan Canticles. They're sort of like praise hymns, but they're actually given as prayers. And they're magnificent. And you are well aware of those. Uh, there's the what's called, um, first of all, we'll start with the Magnificat. That's from the Latin word, my soul magnifies. That's the great prayer that Mary has after meeting there with Elizabeth. And then we'll look at what's called the Benedictus. And that's the great prayer of Zacharias, which is quite similar to Mary's prayer. And then we'll look at Simeon's prayer called the Nuke Demetus. And these are the three, three great biblical prayers in the Gospel of Luke. Now, they're not found in Matthew or the other Gospels as well. Luke positions these very significantly uh, in an understanding of the birth of Christ. And, and I think, we'll, hopefully I'll make this clear, what we'll see is that Luke grounds through these prayers the experience of the birth of Christ right smack in the middle of the history of Israel. It's not some sort of vague, vaporous, ephemeral, ethereal feeling or, or event that happens up someplace in transcendence. It is an event that happened in Bethlehem. Any ever been to Bethlehem? I've been there. Yeah, we, we spent a semester in Jerusalem. Of course, went to the Holy Sepulchre. And, you know, it's nothing really all that wonderful about those places. <laughs> uh, wonderful in the sense of like going to St. Paul's Cathedral or something, or even Canterbury Cathedral. They're kind of run down and a little dingy and ancient. And But that's where Christ came. Christ came in a run down, sort of dirty world that was filled with darkness. And these great prayers will center Jesus right in the middle of human history. But there's also in these great prayers a buoyancy, a movement, an upward thrust in our minds and our spirits towards what God has done then in history. One of the, I think, great sort of theological insights that we can gain from these uh, three biblical prayers is that eternity and time meet. The infinite and the finite, the creator, the preacher, the universe of the particular the all-encompassing and the very, very specific meet in one reality, and that is in Jesus Christ. The meaning of eternity has been revealed in history, and the meaning of human history is found now in the great eternal truth shown in Jesus Christ. Now, these prayers are going to do this. The first one I want to look at is called the Magnificat. It is a magnificent prayer, and I chose the King James Version. One time, if you don't know this, I teach at Stanford University. I, I, I was asked to read scripture in the commencement exercise once, and I read from the King James Version. And somebody came up to me and said, was that from the Bible? Just parenthetically, I, I mean, uh, for sure there are technically better translations 
This one here, I think, is the new revised standard. It's technically, as far as the, the text goes, the best translation. But liturgically, I still favor the King James. And one of the reasons why is because of the great meter of its language. It's a tremendous reading language, uh, scripture. And so I've chose uh, the King James Version here for this prayer. But what I'm going to do with each of these is to, one, respect it as a prayer. Let's honor it as somebody's outpouring of their own spirit towards God. And we'll see just how replete with meaning this great prayer is. But we need to see it as an expression of someone's soul. And so, in a sense, like if you witness somebody's confession of something or a, a revealing of some profound feelings and affections about things, you, you always pay attention and you try to honor the depth of those feelings. And so that's the first approach I want to do with this prayer. And so I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then I'm going to come back and try to look at, I think, some of the great teachings in it. Now, Mary's already uh, been announced by the angels that she was going to give birth to Emmanuel. The Holy Spirit has hovered over her. She's going to see her six-month pregnant cousin Elizabeth, who has John the Baptist, and she is pregnant, that is Mary, and John the Baptist, as you remember the story, is quickened by the presence of Christ there in the womb of Mary. And from that, then, she gives this magnificent prayer called the Magnificat. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he is that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath shewed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. In the You know what this little book is, don't you? Yeah, the sixteen sixty. Uh, 1660 Book of Common Prayer. Uh, I'm no authority on these things, but this is my favorite one of all the Book of Common Prayers, the 1660, and there, there are various reasons for it. And if you are familiar with any of the Books of Common Prayer, even this, this I don't know if this is the newest version or not, but anyway, uh, there are morning and evening prayers. And the Magnificat is a sign for the evening prayer. And that's been the case for a number of centuries, that in the ancient prayer books, the evening prayer, oftentimes what's called Vespers, uh, has this as one of its prayers that it reads. It also had the Nooked Demetus, that is the prayer of Simeon as well. Uh, one of the remarkable things about Mary's prayer here is that it has 21 references to the Old Testament and two references to intertestamental books, 4th Ezra and Judah. Fascinating that just like what I was saying earlier, this has been needed. She has folded over her knowledge, her memory of Scripture. That as a young woman, young girl, and she is just a very young woman here, uh, she must have been imbued with the Scriptures, with the great prophecies and teachings 
of, of Israel's hope for the coming of the Messiah. And so when this extraordinary, extraordinary event occurs, I mean, how would you feel if an angel came to you and said, look, you're going to get pregnant, I'm going to overshadow you, and you're going to give birth to the Savior of the world? How could you make sense out of anything like that? What, a, what, a, what an impossible concept. But Mary does say, when this first happens to her with God, there is nothing impossible. How can we understand something that is impossible? How can we put our mind around something without any kind of precedence like this? A virgin to give birth. Well, she goes back to the scriptures and she folds that into her own recollection and understanding of this incredible experience that has come her way. Uh, she appeals to, um, well, let me ask you. There's sort of a woman that's behind this story, this prayer here. There's another woman that's being alluded to in this prayer. Hannah. Hannah. That's right. Hannah. She was a woman beyond childbearing age. And an angel came to her too. Be careful when angels show up, you women. <laughs> You're never too old. <laughs> you know, that's not the first time. First time was with Sarah. She was beyond childbearing age. And those three angels came and said to Abraham, you're going to give birth. Well, here what was impossible was made possible by the act of God. And here Mary is understanding this extraordinary event by recollecting this story of Eli and Hannah giving birth to Samuel, the first of the great prophets in the Old Testament. So she sees herself right in line with the precedence of God working with the extraordinary people and doing extraordinary events. Now, some ter interpreters, in particular one person that I've read to prepare for this, I've read his stuff before called Raymond Brown, a great scholarly work called The Birth of the Messiah. He says that what Mary has done here is to draw together verses that had become very endearing and enduring and meaningful for the poor and humble of Israel. The poor and humble were these people that had been left behind by the rich and powerful and also left behind by nature itself, like Hannah was. She was left behind. That is, her childbearing days were behind her now, like with Sarah as well. And so these people who are powerless in society, maybe did not have a lot of hope, they were definitely being oppressed by the Romans, they went to the scriptures and they were fed by the scriptures that assured them that God had not forgotten them. That God is God's blessing, even though Israel and Judah may be judged by God, but God's blessings would be passed through these people. Mary, she's from a poor family. She's a virgin. This is impossible for virgins to give birth to, to a child. It is also impossible for a woman beyond childbearing age to give birth to a child. That is biologically impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. And so she understands her experience here in light of these great impossible acts of God that God makes very possible in order to redeem and to change the world. A uh, couple of things about this prayer. Um, it has sort of two divisions to it. There's the introduction to it where she talks about her soul magnifying God. I sort of like that phrase, like a magnifying glass. You look at a magnifying glass, what is, how does things look? Bigger. We look at Mary, how does God look? Bigger. Why? Because the impossible has been done. She doesn't shrink God into just a, a, a 
figment of her imagination or bias or prejudice or some sort of just provincial concern. Her life here becomes a window, a magnifying glass, an expansion of the great work of God that God can even do the impossible to do, the possible in human history. Uh, and for that reason, I'm just a little bit off the course here, even though some of you may have been reared in certain traditions in which Mary is a lot more extolled than we, we typically do, but you know, sort of on the other side, we probably don't appreciate her enough. Let me think. Now, I could be wrong. Anyone else in Scripture described this way? I mean, of course, there are a lot of great people in Scripture, no doubt about it. But I don't know of anyone else, given this sort of description, that their soul magnifies, makes bigger, exposes more of, reveals the, the wonderful works of God. Her soul is able to do that. And so for Mary should always be remembered for that. God chose a human being. You know, one of the early controversies in the development of Christian theology was whether Jesus was really a human being. And this debate went on and on and on. I mean, if he's God, he couldn't become a human being. You ever heard of Arius? I'm way off that. I'll quickly get off this. Arius was a, a fourth century theologian out of Alexandria who said only God could be God. God couldn't really be a human being. So Jesus only was similar but not the same. And that Jesus was born just like anybody else was born. Well, the, the, the orthodox opinion on this is that uh, Jesus was fully human, just like you, born just like you and me. And therefore, Mary was called, and here's a loaded Greek term, Theotokos. You ever heard that phrase? Theo, God, Tokos, the, um, the mother of God. Mary was the mother of God. She really did give birth to the Son of God. It wasn't a symbol. It wasn't a facsimile. It wasn't a metaphor that Jesus was indeed the Son of God born of Mary. Of all people, God got involved in the down and dirty, locked in, so to speak, like a hook. Just reached down and grabbed human history. Just, And there's no letting go, in a sense, by being born of a woman. So we can come to Christ as a person, not as a pretending God. That's one of the great things about, it, about Christmas, isn't it? I don't have to go to heaven to find heaven. Heaven has come and found us. Eternity comes within time and secures itself. We don't, we're not wondering and gossiping and speculating about who God is now. We know exactly. Born of a woman right there in Bethlehem. And so I, this is what she is saying. My soul magnifies it. We know more about God because of what Mary is, was able to do by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is what we know is the Son of God, the triune God revealed in the birth of Jesus Christ. And her soul, therefore, rejoices in that. All right, the, the, the division from 48 through 50 is that allusion, as I said earlier, to Hannah and also to Judith. And these were women who were considered barren, and the impossible was given to them, and they also gave birth. She identifies herself with these type of people, these lowly people, the people of lowly estate, and that God has done mighty things from them. And that what God has done through her then will be passed down from generation to generation. I know this is a story you're familiar with. I know you probably theologically adjusted yourself to thinking this. You know, Christ was not born in Rome. Christ was not born in a palace. 
Christ was not born with the elite, the rulers, the powerful, the dominating, the oppressors. Christ was born in the lowliest of possible states. This is where God has come. So look at it like this. This may be a weak analogy, but if, if, if God had become incarnate only in, let's say, a ruler, then God's redemption would go only as far down as the ruler. But if God becomes incarnate all the way down to the lowest of the low, the poor of the poorest, then God can redeem everything. And this is what she is extolling here. All of generations now will be redeemed by what has happened. Then in the second part, starting with 51, uh, there's the emphasis on the community. The first part is on her. The second part here is on the community. And it refers to, in a way, we have to see it for what it is, a, a political change in the world. That what happens there in the manger is not just between Mary and God, but it's between the whole world and God. What Christ is going to do is to change the political structures of the world. Look how that is described. He's going to scatter the proud. He's going to put down the mighty. Exalt the low. He's going to feed the hungry. And the rich are going to be sent away. Now, the rich here are not just those with possessions, those who are, who are oppressing others because of their possessions. Here, Christ is going to reorder the basic power structure of the world. That seems impossible, doesn't it? Here we are, 2018, and the power structure is still intact, isn't it? Who usually wins wars, by the way? How do nations recollect their histories? Who are the people that really define the courses of, of peoples and generations? It's those who have the power to oppress or to dominate or to control. That seems inevitable, almost as inevitable as a law of gravity. But this is the story of Christmas, isn't it? The impossible can be done. And our faith as Christians is not some sort of resignation that all we give up There'll always be the dominating, oppressing rich against the poor. There's nothing we do, so let's just like what Marx said, you know, opiate ourselves. Or like Freud said, wish for another world. What Christ comes, no, the, the new world's coming here. It's going to, our faith is that through Christ, this will be happening. And so Christmas, is in a way, is a testimony that the old will be gone. And that what we may think is impossible can become a possibility. And then she ends this uh, with something, and, and if I get on course close in, uh, uh, enough, I'll have to say more about this. He hath kept his servant Israel. We're going to see this in the Benedictus, and we'll see this in the Nocdimitus, and they are definitely going to see it in that wonderful hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. There's a lot of reference to Israel in all this. That Christ is the Messiah of Israel, the Emmanuel, God with us, who will restore Israel, the fulfillment of Israel. I, I'm going to go ahead and say this, even though there's a lot more detail in another one of these prayers here, but I want to make sure I get this out. Uh, I know what I'm going to say is controversial uh, on both sides, both the Christian side and on the Jewish side. I've had many people, just as sincere as they can be, knowledgeable, in fact, more knowledgeable than I am, 
say that in the sense the church has broken off from Israel. We're no longer part of that. That's the old, we're the new. And I've been in many conversations with Jews who find any discussion about the church being linked to Israel, that the Christian faith being embedded in the Jewish faith, as offensive and uh, potentially anti-Semitic. And so it's not a real popular or... No, that's not the right word. It's not a comfortable position, what I'm about to argue here. Let me put it that way. I think the church is inseparable from Israel. I don't think we can actually separate ourselves from the history of what God has done with Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. We as Gentiles have been, as Paul says, adopted into this. Our Christian message is not about some sort of timeless, ahistorical, supernatural truth. Our message is the redemption of the world starting there in Israel. Now, of course, as we well know, Judaism and the political state of Israel have evolved in its own court, their own courses. And modern-day Judaism has as much right to be who they are as what they've worked out for all these centuries. And I'm not here saying they're wrong and they need to change. But what I do think we have to insist, as she said, who hath helped his servant Israel, that Christ is the healing of Israel. That Christ, the Emmanuel, is the good news to what God said to Abraham and to Moses and through the prophets And there in Bethlehem, that good word was spoken and incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And we have to see that. Now, I admit, I'm way over my head in this. I shouldn't have gotten into this. Uh, I can't back out. (laughs) Hopefully, I'll 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 find a sort of breadcrumbs and I can get out of this, this quagmire I got myself into. That Christmas should not be seen as a rejection of the historical revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And what that is, is that he was born there to be the the Messiah of Israel. And that we have to hold on with all our might and all our faith that the great promises that were given to Abraham and you know codified in the law and spoken about by the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That righteousness and justice will be brought into the world because of what Christ has done. And it's done through the covenant of Abraham, that God has not given up on the covenant. And we are children of the covenant. By, by no means am I implying by that that uh, modern-day Judaism uh, is a, a, a perverted form of religion. I'm not saying that uh, people of many, many generations who have taken the law and the prophets and have tried to do the best they can being faithful to the covenant of Abraham are are, are Ignorant of the blessings of God. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we're joined. Because we're still part of the Abrahamic covenant. And Christmas is a way of of reminding that. Like I said with my my analogy, it needs us back over. Let us not forget the covenant of of Abraham. Let us not forget what Israel stands for, should stand for, and one day will manifest gloriously the fulfillment of God's promises to 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 the covenant of Abraham. And we are part of that testimony as well. I didn't do a good job on that. I should have had another cup of coffee. Okay, forgive me. All right, the next great biblical prayer is uh, Benedictus, and this is by Zacharias, an older priest, a very faithful man. Uh, Elizabeth and he were said to be righteous people who followed all the commandments of God, obedient people. Uh, She is beyond childbearing age. And remember that uh, angel comes 
and says, look, your, your wife's going to bear a child. And he goes, I don't think so. <laughs> and the angel said, well, for that, you're going to be mute for a number of days. And so he walks out and he can't say anything. People think he's stricken with the spirit or something. Well, eventually, though, uh, when she does become pregnant, uh, that, that sort of curse is lifted from him. And out of his mouth, the very first words that he says is this wonderful prayer. Now, in the Book of Common Prayer, this is in the morning prayer, if you follow that. <clears throat> and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the King James, our Holy Spirit. What a great way to designate somebody. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Mary was said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I forgot to mention this. All around these people were these singing angels. Amazing. Sounds all over the place. Choruses going on right and left. Angelic voices being heard throughout all these people's lives. Wherever they went, these angels were great, making these great announcements. This great encouragement and support to these lowly people who seemed to have been, nature had left behind because she was buried, or the power had left behind because Mary was so poor. All these people who don't seem to have angelic support behind them because they are the poor, the humble. God comes and works through these people. And so here he is. He is just filled with the Holy Spirit, bursting out. And he prophesied saying, Blessed, hence Benedictus, be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and he hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all those that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he sware unto our father Abraham, that, we would, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand, our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias gives thanks for two births. The first is the birth of Christ, and then the second was the birth of his own son, John the Baptist. And the Baptist justification or role or place in all this is, as he says, to prepare a way. To open up, and I love this phrase. I had, I can't remember if there's bound to be a, probably another translation a little differently. The, the day spring from on high. That John the Baptist comes and opens up that day spring from on high. Like you're digging down and you hit water and the vein comes up. John the Baptist has prepared people. And as you well know, outside of that, when Christ visits the temple when he's 12, we, we don't know what's going on. John the Baptist, in some ways, all those years out in the wilderness, you know, crying the, the day of the Lord and, 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 and the judgment upon Pilate and Herod and all these people, was preparing, digging into that well so that the day springs could come up. And then, as you know, at the baptism of Christ, it all starts. This is what his role was. And Zacharias sees this, and he gives great, great, he's, he's thankful for it. Uh, 
This uh, is a representation of the community. As we saw in the Magnificat, Mary speaks on her behalf, my soul magnify the Lord, then she speaks on behalf of the community. The Benedictine, though Zacharias is not talking about himself, is only talking about uh, the community's gratitude for what God is doing. And he does several things with this. The first part is a recognition that this one who is to be born, and it's not his son because John the Baptist wouldn't have done this, would fulfill the Davidic covenant. That is the covenant given to David. That in this person, the kingdom of David will find his proper, his proper expression. The second part, as it says, yes, with verse 73, that this person, this child, will fulfill the covenant that God gave to Abraham. If you're familiar with the reading of the Old Testament, there are many, many times in which you know, God is so righteously indignant of the unrighteousness, blasphemy, and idolatry of the Israelites and the people of Judah that he, he swears that he's just going to liquidate them. Remember up at Sinai, at the very beginning of all this, you know, God hears of their, their idolatrous act and says, I'm going to destroy them all. And Moses says, now wait, 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 wait. Those people in Egypt will think then that they've won. And so God spares them. God constantly spares the rebellious people of Israel and Judah, his own people, the descendants of Abraham. Why? Because he remembered the covenant of Abraham. God has a memory. I know that may be hard theologically for us to sort of think about, but God recollects his word. I gave my word to these people. And what we find here in the birth of Christ is the fulfillment of that word. And Zechariah knows this, that this long history, 2,000 years we've gone through this story of God setting us up and we rebelling and God restores us. That painful path of tears that Israel had walked from ever from that you know from the beginning of the covenant uh, there to the beginning of the first century here is now going to be brought to its fulfillment. The story is going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. My time is almost up. When are you leaving for the eleven o'clock? Okay, well I'll, I'll quickly bring this down. I, I didn't get as far as I wanted to, but and then he uh, ends up as I mentioned here the last part of it referring to John the Baptist. I love the last line as well, to give light to them that sit in darkness. Christ is the light of the world. He gives light. Now, what does that mean other than in a platitude? We turn off the lights and here it's dark. We turn it on. With but what do we mean when we say Christ is the light of the world? He gives light and darkness. What do you think? Reveals it? Reveals it? It's God's light. It's not my light which is awful dim and getting dimmer by the moment. It could be our light. Whose light is this? It's the light of God come into the realm of darkness. The real hope, the real object of our faith, the real cause of love in the world has now entered in it. And so if we want to know how to bring peace in the world, act like Christ. If we want to know how to give hope to the hopeless, those who are just locked into the traps of despair, we act like Christ towards them. He is the light of the world and has come to us as a gift. All right, and Zacharias here, I think, is just just exuding this type of gratitude. Well, now he, he is about to experience the birth, first of his own son, John, and then uh, Mary's son, Emmanuel, Jesus. All right, I'm going to need to stop here. I, I had a feeling I was going to chase a lot of rabbits. 
But uh, when we come back on Tuesday, I'll talk about Simeon's great prayer, then I'll talk about those two hymns. And I'll try to stay on, stay on course a little better. And I have a number of prayers. I want to look, I'm going to look at some, before this is over, I'm going to look at some prayers. Uh, another prayer by Gerard Manley Hopkins. John Dunn, remember him, the great, great bishop, bishop of uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, magnificent preacher and writer and poet himself. George Herbert, another great poet. Those three great English poets, uh, they wrote, also wrote great, great hymns. I also have some Christmas prayers from uh, St. Augustine. Uh, let's see, uh, I've got some contemporary Christian prayers, one from Carl Barth that I think is a very meaningful one. Uh, and I'll also look at those two hymns, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And again, if you have a hymn that you want to look at, or if you want to come up and do a solo for us, you are welcome to do that. If I did, you would think darkness had taken over light in the world. So I'm not even going to try that. But I do love these hymns. Let's pray. O Emmanuel, come among us, O please God, and restore Israel, restore the hope of the world, bring justice to us all. We are so grateful that thou spoke through these people, Mary magnifying thee, Zacharias bursting with gratitude, and may our hearts be as well. Bless us, O Lord, this I pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.